Good evening, everyone. There's a lot of people here. <laughs> Hadn't realized that when you're sitting at the front. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure how aware you are of the church next door, uh, the Belfast Spiritualist Church. I'm not asking if, if you knew that they were our immediate neighbors. That's pretty obvious, but... I'm just wondering if you're aware of what actually happens at their divine service each Sunday evening between 6.30 and 8 p.m. It's my understanding that uh, they sing a few hymns and they pray. But a key aspect of their service involves a demonstration of mediumship where they attempt to make contact with the departed spirits in order to bring a message to people in the congregation. And one of their, uh, one of their seven principles is the communion of the saints, the communion of the spirits. And I've just lifted this particular quarter statement straight from their church website. It says, all religions believe in life after death, but only spiritualism shows that it is true by demonstrating that communication with departed spirits can and does take place. And this happens every day of every week in spiritualist churches all over the world thanks to the dedicated work of church members and the mediums. Our loved ones and friends that have passed to the spirit world will take advantage of these demonstrations to bring evidence and proof of their continued existence. Now, I am not wanting to take a cheap shot or a cheap dig at our neighbors. But as we pick up from where we left off last week in 1 Samuel, we come to a rather strange chapter in the overall story. A chapter that involves a very definite connection with what might be happening next door right now. And therefore, it would be a nonsense for us to read this chapter and for me not to mention spiritualism on the back of the events that we're about to read about. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel 28, it's, it's page 300 in the, the Pew Bibles. Uh, and as always, it'd be really handy if you can see a copy of it because we're kind of going to work our way through it and go on a bit of a journey. Now last week, if you were here, it was not David's finest hour or his finest 16 months, to be more accurate. 1 Samuel 27 was a godless text, literally. If you look down at it, if you weren't here last week, if you look down at it, there's no mention of God, no reference to God. As David started thinking to himself, instead of the alternative, which is inquiring of the Lord. And as a result of David thinking to himself, it led to deeply pessimistic thinking on David's part as he became convinced that, that Saul is going to kill me. 
Saul is going to take my life. I'm never going to be king. David, you see, had forgotten or lost sight of God's word and God's promises that had been spoken into his life on numerous occasions by a whole variety of people. But for whatever reason, David had got to a point where he started thinking to himself instead of inquiring of the Lord, and he lost focus. And that then led or seemed to lead David into making some pretty poor choices and bad decisions. For example, to go and seek refuge in Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, the guy he had murdered. And also to seek refuge from a Philistine king. And David actually got to the point, and I say if you were with us last week, got to the point of actually describing himself as Achish's servant. And by the end of chapter 27, Achish himself is so convinced by David that he's kind of sold out, that in the very final verse of chapter 27, Achish says that David is going to be his servant, not just now, not just for 16 months, but for life. David's not in a great place. But as we said last week, one of, the, one of the reasons why the Bible is so inspiring and authentic and important is because it doesn't avoid, it doesn't edit out the less impressive moments or mistakes or failures in the lives of its heroes and key characters. That God in his love and his grace and his mercy continues to choose and stick by and work out his purposes in and through the lives of ordinary men and women who don't always get it right. And and that should give many of us, it certainly gives me a huge amount of encouragement. God continues to choose, stick by, and work out his purposes in people who get it wrong at times. So let's continue the story. Now the first two verses in chapter 28, they really belong to the previous chapter. The Philistines, it says, are assembling their forces and they're about to launch an offensive on Israel. And Achish insists that David and his men, and remember about 600 of them, David and his men join him in his army. David appears to sign up, although his answer is a bit vague. And then Achish appoints David as his Kevin Costner, his bodyguard for life. That's not in there, just in case those of you are all looking, okay? Just his bodyguard for life is how he describes it. Now, at this point in the text, kind of after verse 2, there seems to be a massive pause in the story. Because rather than find out what happens to David and what he does, there's a kind of cut and a start to a new scene. And so you're left hanging and you're left wondering, well, what does David do? Does he join Hakish? Does he go and fight? Well, we will find out, but not for a few weeks. Because in terms of chronological order, there there does seem to be a bit of a break in the flow here after verse 2. And so a new, and as I've said, pretty strange scene begins which takes us to a place called Endor. I'm going to read from verse 3 and we're going to do it in stages. Now Samuel was dead 
and all Israel had mourned him. Now, we already knew this. If you just flick back to chapter 25, the very first words of chapter 25 read, Now Samuel died. So this is not new news. There must be some point in repeating it. And there is, as we're about to discover. End of verse 3 then. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. It's an interesting comment. Why tell us that? Again, we're about to discover. But all we can say at this stage is that at one point in his life, Saul realized and recognized that mediums and spiritists have no place or role to play in the life of Israel. And so as king, Saul, at some point in the past, had kicked him out. Probably in response to his understanding of God's explicit directives. Let me, let me show you some of those. God says, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him out from among his people. Now, a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Or this one. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Hang on a second. Terrellies, looks like I might have lost a page. Now that's interesting. Oh no, I haven't. It's okay. In case somebody was thinking, oh. <laughs> beginning to think that myself so the point is that 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 Saul according to verse 28 or chapter 28 Saul has has at some point cast out mediums and spiritists and it could be that that Saul was aware of these directives from God but if we go back to the story look at verse 4 it says the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Now, pause there for a moment. Hands up, and not actually, but hands up if you feel sorry for Saul. Because here he is doing 
exactly what David didn't do last week. And we said that because David didn't do this, he ended up making a bunch of mistakes. It says last week, and we've already showed it, David thought to himself, whereas here is Saul turning to God. Saul inquires of the Lord. Here is Saul doing what we applauded Jehoshaphat for doing at Gordon's induction on the 12th of uh, January. Jehoshaphat inquired of the Lord, and I encouraged Gordon to be a man of prayer, a man who inquires of the Lord. Here is Saul inquiring of the Lord, and yet God doesn't answer him. Saul's given no dreams, the Urim, which is a kind of lottery, fails, and the prophets have no word of the Lord to offer him. It's so sad. And we'll come back to it in a moment because surely there must be a reason why. Why, God? Why, when someone inquires of you, do you not answer? Verse 7. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who's a medium so that I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, You will not be punished for this. Pause there. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Saul decides to violate his own ban. He's now prepared to compromise on an issue and a standard he once held and once passionately believed in. And I was thinking about this during the week and and I thought, you know, this can so easily happen. On any number of things. And so kind of before we're too harsh on Saul for going back and shifting the goalposts. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself rethinking certain values you once held? Have you ever found yourself drawing lines in different places from where you once drew them? Especially whenever whenever the heat is on or whenever the pressure is on. Or whenever it kind of suits to shift a little or a lot. Now there are times and there are issues when it's good and it's appropriate to reconsider your position and realign your thinking. I do believe that. But there are also times and issues whenever to do so is incredibly dangerous. And for Saul this was his mistake. Because it turns out there is a medium in Endor. Don't know how she's still there. Don't know how people knew about her, but anyway, they do. And so Saul, in disguise, it says, goes and asks her to consult a spirit on his behalf. And the medium thinks it's a trap, and that's understandable because she knows that the king, Saul, has kicked them all out of the land. So, so Why? Why is this person asking for someone to consult a spirit? 
But Saul, who is heavily disguised, swears to her by the Lord, which is ironic, that she's safe. Do you know, even when you choose to do something that is blatantly wrong, you sometimes attempt to bring God with you or bolt God on to justify your actions or to make it seem less extreme. And and that's what Saul's doing here. Swearing by the Lord, you're okay. You'll be safe. Let's bring God into this. Verse 11. And this is where it gets, for me anyway, bizarre and unsettling. Then the woman asked him, who will I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. You see, it works. say it works or at least it worked here some people have tried to explain this away some people said this this is just an hallucination it's a bit of impressive trickery deception on the part of the medium or it wasn't really Samuel it was a demonic impersonation of him but none of that is implied none of that is even hinted in the text therefore let's not get into mental gymnastics and try to get our way around this The best explanation, the only explanation, despite how strange it all seems, is that this actually happened. The medium contacted... That's why the text told us Samuel was dead, repeated something we already knew three chapters ago, but it just got us thinking about that. Samuel's dead. He's gone. Yet... The medium has contacted him from beyond the grave. And as we're about to see, he communicates with Saul. Now that should, that should send our heads spinning. As Dale Ralph Davis says, we must remember that scripture describes such practices not as futile but as pagan. Yahweh forbids Israel to use these means not because they do not work but because they are wicked. Or as another writer puts it in in his book The Religion of Israel the laws ban divination on the ground that it's an abomination they know or intimate that it is in vain. Nor does it say this stuff doesn't, can't work. This did. Maybe still does. Work. 
But that's not the issue. The issue is that we should not do it. We should not play with fire. The rest of scripture, and I've already referred to those various instructions, and there are more, make it clear. And so 1 Samuel 28 does not justify or open the way to exploring this whole area. For his own reasons, God permitted Samuel to come up and speak to Saul. To speak into his life and into his situation. And this case is simply the exception that proves the rule. How God chooses to work and get his message across is his prerogative. It's his right. Even if God chooses to use unconventional and at times unacceptable practices, methods to us. But it's God's choice. God uses it here. In 1 Samuel 28. But as we move on, I want to make a comment about kind of next door. I am nervous about what potentially goes on as we meet here every single Sunday night. But I've got to be very careful how I react and respond. Yes, this practice is absolutely out of bounds for the people of God. But those who don't share our faith are searching for answers. They are searching for meaning, for hope, for assurance that there is more to life than this. And therefore they will search, they will consider, they will explore many different alternatives. And I want to suggest that that's one. And so what is our response? Well, I believe we need to pray for them. We need to seek to understand their desires and intentions and reasons. It's not my place. It's not our place to judge men, judge them. It's not our place to get on a high horse and run them out of town or become in any way aggressive towards them. We are, I believe, to love our neighbors even when we disagree with or have deep concerns about their practices, their way of life, or their pursuit of answers to the big questions of life. God speaks to the people of God and says, do not go there. This stuff is not for you. Don't dabble with it. Don't experiment with it. Don't consider it. Don't explore it. But as for people who do not share our faith, who are desperate to find meaning and hope, as I say, they will try a whole variety of ways to discover answers. And that may be one of the ways they consider And so let us love our neighbors. Let us pray for them that the light of the world, Jesus, will shine into and pierce the darkness. And that as delegated lights of the world, as we have discovered from Matthew 5, who we are, that we will shine brightly, that we will do good deeds, as it says, and we will point people to a place where they will praise our Father in heaven. So what is our role? Pray for them. Seek to understand the desires, the reasons, the intentions. And shine. Live out our lives, holding out the word of life, 
being lights of the world as we are in order that people may see true light. But back to the story. Because we then come to one of the the saddest or some of the saddest words printed in all of Scripture. Verse 15. Samuel said to Saul. So here's the communication part. Here's it happening. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me? Now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Here are some of the darkest words in all scripture. God has departed from me. He no longer answers me. Saul finds himself abandoned by God and he experiences God on mute. And nothing could be more tragic or hopeless. And it's not that God is now somehow neutral towards Saul. And, and, Saul and, and this is where, again, it gets even more uncomfortable. It's not that God's neutral towards Saul. It's worse than that. Look at the end of verse 16. According to Samuel, God has become Saul's enemy. <laughs> and as we wrestle with this text, and I can assure you I, I, have, I have wrestled with this during the week. And it's no wonder Gas said to me during the week, as he had read it over, he said, I'm probably not going to frame the praise around the text, (laughs) which is totally understandable. But as we wrestle with this, we've got to ask and confront the obvious question, why? Why has it reached this stage, this point, this desperate conclusion? Why? And although we have possibly come across lots of reasons during this series, as as we have read from 1 Samuel 16, and and we've watched Saul lose it time and time again. We've watched him try to pin David to the wall using his spear. We've watched him relentlessly pursuing David year after year after year, intent on killing him. But actually, if we're going to discover why it's reached this point, we've got to rewind even further back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Don't worry about looking it up. Because Samuel actually tells us, Saul, because you did not obey the Lord, because you did not listen to the voice of Yahweh or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, this is why the Lord has done this to you today. And so Samuel here is referring to an incident that happened in 1 Samuel 15. 
It's a multifaceted story, I know, and I'm, I'm kind of simplifying it, and some of you may challenge me for doing this, but anyway, I'm going to simplify it. But you see, back then, back in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is given a simple, although pretty uncompromising commission from God, and it's this, go and attack Amalek. Go and attack him and utterly destroy everything he has. Every man, every woman, every child, every infant, every ox, every sheep, every camel, every donkey, destroy all of it. The thing is, Saul didn't. Or at least he he failed to do it all. He followed through in part of the instruction, but he did his own thing. And he thought that it would please others if he kind of held back in certain aspects. And so he spared one particular king amongst the Amalekites. And he kept certain valuable items for himself. And he then set up a monument to himself because he got kind of full of his own importance because he had done quite a good job. And then what he does is whenever he's challenged about what he has done, he blames others because he was really only doing what they wanted him to do. And so although Saul might have thought he got away with it, and if you were here last week, I mean, he chased David for something like 10 years. So this incident happened years and years and years ago. And Saul might have thought, you know, I got away with that. I kind of was obedient up to a point. I didn't do it all. I've got away with it. But it turns out, according to Samuel, that this is the very reason, Saul, God has abandoned you. This is the very reason you're unable to get an answer. The text here is is not gentle, but it's clear. If you despise God's word, here's what I want to say, and and I know there's a heaviness about tonight, and I apologize for that. But if you despise God's word, he may just take it from you. And if you persistently refuse to obey God's speech and do your own thing and become a people pleaser, and and that kind of is what sets the agenda, then you may have to endure God's silence. Obedience was critical. And for us here this evening, it remains critical. Whether we listen or fail to listen to God is a choice but it's a choice with consequences. And God continues to speak into our lives via his word and our response matters. The issue for Saul is that he persistently refused to listen and obey. And there came a point whenever Saul crossed a line and it was too late. And so last week I said this, I said failure is not final. I'm actually back this week to change that a little. I felt really challenged about this during the week. Because maybe I should amend this to failure is not necessarily final. Yes, there are second, third, fourth, fifth chances with God. And David's story will reveal that as we continue. And we're hopefully going to journey right through David's story. This particular series kind of takes us up to Easter the rise of David, and then at some point, probably in about eight months' time, we're going to pick up the second half of David's life story, the kind of fall of David 
But as we go there, we discover that God gave him chance after chance after chance. Yes, there is second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Failure is not final. You can say that to a point. But you know something? See, if we don't learn from our own mistakes, see if we keep doing our own thing, see if we keep trying to live to please others, if we keep digging our heels in and heading off in our own direction, if we don't keep coming back to God in confession and repentance, there may come a point, there may come a point when it is too late. That we've gone too far. And by the time that we realize and by the time that we inquire of the Lord, we discover that there's nothing but a wall of silence and a sense of being absolutely on our own. And that was Saul's story. And Samuel's speech to him here ends with a horrific prophecy. This time tomorrow, I know we do uh, this time tomorrow on Sunday mornings. This would have been some question for Saul. Where will you be this time tomorrow, Saul? According to Samuel, I'll be with him. Me and my sons will all be dead this time tomorrow. And Saul, when he hears that, collapses in a heap. And is scared out of his wits, according to verse 20. No wonder. And then, like a man on death row, Saul eats his last meal with a medium. His last supper. It's a fascinating and insightful and unsettling chapter. And hopefully there's lots for you to kind of take away and consider further and chew over. But let me make a few kind of summarizing comments. And then I actually want to lead us into a wee bit of time, a response to tonight. As a Christian, as the people of God, let's not go near or entertain stuff that is explicitly out of bounds to us and dangerous. Never. Be careful about compromise and accommodation. Be careful about going back and shifting your standards or rather shifting God's standards on certain issues. Be careful. Pray for those who are searching for answers. Pray for those who are looking for hope in all kinds of different places, including those who are looking for hope in places that deeply trouble us. Consider how we hold out the word of life as the delegated lights of the world. And finally, let's never refuse and persistently refuse to listen to and obey God's word before it's too late. The adventure continues in two weeks. But just one final thought. I said earlier there's probably nothing more distressing and disturbing than being abandoned by God. One of the amazing aspects of the gospel is that Jesus experienced that. It just really struck me this week. 
There's nothing more distressing and disturbing than being abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by God so that we would never have to be. And so as we respond this evening, we're going we're gonna to sing a song that we normally sing before uh, we turn to God's word. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep within us. Shape and fashion us into your likeness. Second verse says this, teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. And I want to suggest three responses to tonight. And, and I'd like you to kind of consider one of these responses as we sing the song. The first response is that you would use this time to pray for next door. Actually pray for the service which is just finishing. Pray for the people who have been there tonight. Pray for whatever has gone on. The second response is, you may want to do instead, is, is consider this whole issue of obedience. Of actually kind of following through on God's word. And then the third response is to give thanks for the cross. To just say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you were willing to be abandoned by God in order that I would never have that experience. Pray. Reflect on the issue of obedience. Give thanks for the cross. Let's, uh, let's sing this song together and encourage you to pick up on one of those responses as we close.